Welcome to Table Lore. Table Lore is a storytelling podcast designed to be continued by you. Each episode focuses on new locations, characters, and spooks, which can be used for creative projects or tabletop role-playing games such as Monster of the Week or One-Shot D&D campaigns. Season 1 is a tour across the United States, and a D100 role determines where we're going next. I'm your co-host, Megan. And I'm your other co-host, Cass. Before we begin, remember that Table Lore is a fictional storytelling podcast, and while sometimes we will explore real legends, nothing we say should be treated as fact. This week, we're going to Iowa. Oh, I, you don't have a longer name that I can say. Megady. Yeah, but that's not what it is for real. You could call me Megady. Okay. How about Meg? Do I need a rebrand as Meg? I don't know. I think you could do a rebrand as Meg. Hmm. Let's just go with Megan for now. All right. We'll stick with Megan for now. Okay. Hey, where are we going this week? We're going to Villisca, Iowa. Yeah. Have you ever been to Iowa? Um, no, not for any amount of time. I have driven through Iowa, mm-hmm. and my sister's fiance is from the Des Moines area, and he's good as a human, you know, so that's all I know about Iowa. Oh, that one single person is good from Iowa. Yeah, so there's at, at least, least one. At least one good person from Iowa. <laughs> okay. I have a couple of friends who go to grad school in Iowa. Oh, at Drake. Or what school? University of Iowa? Nice. Go Hawkeyes, I think. I don't know. Well, we're not into big college sports, so we don't know. We're not into really any sport. Mm. Unless that sport is sleeping. (laughs) I'm into that. I'm into the sport of doing homework. And petting cats. Yes. All good sports. So, Iowa is a very small state. I would say. You're not going to ask me if I've been to Iowa? So sorry. Have you been to Iowa? No, I haven't. (laughs) That's why I don't think I asked. (laughs) Anyway, so Iowa's very small. There's like just about 3 million people in Iowa, and most of them live in Des Moines. So kind of one of those states. Mm, One of those states. Yeah. And uh, it's like pretty Midwest as the Midwest goes. There's Minnesota right to the north. And then Missouri right to its south. So that's Iowa. Oh, I have actually been to Iowa. When you go to Omaha, Nebraska, there's a tiny blip of Iowa that you have to drive through in order to drive down the highway or something. So I have been to Iowa. Actually. I don't know if that counts. I think it totally counts. Does I crossed state border. Hopefully you didn't commit any crimes and then cross the state border because then that's federal. Oh, man. All my crimes. All those crimes. You commit so many of them. <laughs> crimes against nature. Being too hot. Loving cats too much. Those are my crimes. You are guilty of those crimes. Mm-hmm. So, Megan, as I was researching Iowa, some of the folklore. Oh, yeah. I found two cool things this time as I was doing my research. So, the first thing I found that we could have done this whole episode just about this but in the town of Erling, Iowa there was a woman named Emma Schmidt 
um, also known by the pseudonym Anna Uckland, Eckland, that she was written about in a book as Anna Anna Eckland, but her real name was Emma Schmidt. Anyway, she allegedly suffered from demonic possession (laughs) from the time she was 14, which I'm like, okay, normal teenagehood things, maybe being mistaken. Normal teenagehood things, just getting possessed by demons. Yeah, um, but apparently she was possessed for several decades, and then a Roman Catholic priest came and conducted a very extensive months-long exorcism on her in 1928, and supposedly this has this story has inspired maybe some of the other famous exorcism movies of pop culture. Wow, that sounds really awful and intense. Yeah. The other thing I found, which like sounds like an episode we could have written, and I was so excited about this. Um, have you ever heard of the Van Meter Visitor? The Van Meter Visitor? Yeah. No, but it's an excellent name yeah so in 1913 um in the town of van meter iowa there was just this strange creature that several people noticed during the day that was like perched on top of buildings and would like kind of fly around perched on top of a different building so So batman well so it did have large bat-like wings and (laughs) it smelled weird and batman right and it could um, shine a beam of light from its forehead. Not like Batman. So that is unlike Batman. And it didn't seem to be bothered when people like shot their guns at it. And eventually the townsfolk of Van Meter kind of herded this creature into abandoned cold mine where they found a smaller, perhaps a baby of oh. the creature. And then both of the creatures fled into the coal mine and were never seen again. Wow. So, how did they know it smelled bad? Well, apparently, when one when one man kind of like shot at it, it emitted a strange odor from its mouth and then shined its light beam at him. Interesting. I was imagining that people could just walk up to this creature and <laughs> get a big old whiff of that. Well, okay, so... I think it is an alien, right? Like, that's an alien that came to visit, right? Probably. Yes. And so now every fall, the town hosts a festival dedicated to the Van Meter Visitor. That's very cool. I know. And this town is kind of right outside Des Moines, so, like, maybe we can go visit sometime. Well, we may be moving to Kansas next year, so if we do, we can go. Today's episode is based on a true crime event. So this is a real event, real crime, real location, real house. Our main characters, however, are fictional today. And what they encounter during this episode was imagined by us with some loose basings on actual reviews, reports, speculation, and whatnot. Um... But the crime is real, the location is real, but the people in the story are fictional. Like we said, we'll be going to Villisca, Iowa. This is about 2018. Yeah, about 2018. The pre-pandemic world. If you can remember it. It was so distant. It was a distant four years ago. Okay, so want to get us started then? Yes, I'd love to. 
Christina is unloading the dishwasher when she hears the front door open and the familiar sound of Cheddar, her orange tabby cat, greeting her husband Eric with joyful meows. They adopted Cheddar as a kitten during their first year of dating, and this year, Christina and Eric will be celebrating their seventh year of marriage. Eric hangs up his keys on the hook by the door and walks into the kitchen, holding Cheddar like a baby in his right arm, a pizza box in his left. He sets the pizza down on the table and approaches Christina for a hug. Did you listen to the new episode today? Eric asks, breaking the hug and passing Cheddar into Christina's arms so that he can wash his hands. I did, but only because I assumed you would listen to it on your drive home. She responds, rocking the cat gently in her arms. You got me. He smiles over his shoulder at his wife, turning off the faucet and drying his hands. It was so good, wasn't it? If by good, you mean incredibly tragic and gruesome, then yes, Christina replies. She opens the pantry door and scoops some cat food out of a bag into Cheddar's yellow food dish. So when do you want to go? Eric teases, leaning against the kitchen counter. How about we eat dinner first and then decide on when would be the ideal weekend to visit a hundred-year-old crime scene, she replies, flipping open the lid of the pizza box and grabbing a slice. The couple finish most of the pizza and save the rest in the fridge for lunch tomorrow. Next on their nightly ritual is sitting on the couch together, with Cheddar curled up on the fluffy orange blanket on Christina's lap, perfectly camouflaged. Eric shows Christina a webpage on his phone. Look, babe, we could spend the night at the house. She peers at his phone screen. Yeah, but it's like $400, she comments. And who would feed Mr. Cheese when we're gone? She scratches the cat gently under his chin, causing him to purr deeply. We'll leave a big bowl of food out for him. I think he'd be okay for one night alone. Eric reassures her, and it could be like an early birthday present for me. He pouts teasingly, trying to convince her to say yes. I don't know, babe. It's maybe a little too freaky for me. I don't actually want to meet a ghost. Do you? Yeah, I really think I do. I just want to know for sure if they're real, you know? Best case scenario, we encounter something harmless. Worst case scenario, we get scared and leave in the middle of the night. Best case scenario, we experience nothing at all, and we have a peaceful night's sleep at an old, completely unhaunted house. Christina comes back. Well, sure, I suppose that would be the best case scenario for you. Me, on the other hand, I want to experience something new and exciting. He grins at her. Plus, we've never lived so close to a place featured on our favorite podcast. It would be cool to see it in person. Okay, Christina sighs faux-dramatically. How about I think about it and get back to you in the morning? Deal? Sounds like a deal, he agrees before kissing her cheek and turning on the TV. So let's back up just a little. Eric and Christina. Yeah. They just recently moved to Iowa. Yeah, to Des Moines. Probably some suburb around there. And they're early 30s. Yep. What do these people look like? Well, I feel like Eric is just kind of pretty average in height and build. What color hair? Maybe kind of sandy, sandy brown, dark sure. blonde. Yeah. Is dark blonde a hair color? <laughs> it can't. It is now. It is now. Yeah. So I think Eric's like probably like an accountant. Um, you know, not the most like riveting job. So he really loves listening to podcasts that kind of like get his blood pressure up a little bit you know Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. What about Christina? Christina is a history teacher oh, at, a, at the school? university. Oh, university level? So yeah. like a professor? Or? Yeah, she's a university history professor. Okay. What does she look like? So Christina is tall with long kind of blonde hair. She looks kind of like every... Uh, gullible, innocent, blonde girl in all the scary movies. Except she's actually really smart. I like that. Glasses? Yeah, she can have glasses. That's how you know someone's smart. It's when they're wearing glasses. Oh, because we both wear glasses? Yeah, and every smart person I know has glasses. Prove me wrong. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, and their cat, Cheddar, I think is just... Or Mr. Cheese. Or Mr. Cheese, as he's known. Um, I think he's, like, really fluffy. Like, a really fluffy orange tabby. Very never... rarely gets the one brain cell, though, that orange cats share. Yeah, he's not, like, the smartest cat, but he is sweet. He gets his turn once a year, maybe. He has a sweet spirit. <laughs> Very kindred soul. Yes. Yeah. So, three weeks after they listen to this podcast episode... Eric and Christina decide they're going to go and visit the location that they heard about on this episode. So they drive west on the 80 after leaving not just one, but two giant heaping bowls of food out for their beloved cheddar. You don't think he's eaten all of it already, do you? Christina asks. I think he'll be perfectly fine. Eric squeezes her hand comfortingly. Let's listen to the episode again for a refresher, he says, navigating the touchscreen on the dashboard. The sound of two podcast hosts introducing their show fills the car. Meta-podcasting. Meta-podcasting. Welcome to Don't Get Caught in the Dark, a true crime podcast that you shouldn't fall asleep to. I'm your host, Mason. And I'm your other host, Casey. And this week, we're talking about the Velisca Axe Murders. An old, white frame house, doors and windows boarded up, stands still at the end of 2nd Street in Velisca, Iowa. Seemingly trapped in time, the home, void of light and sound, seems to warn rather than welcome any passerbys. Picture this scene. A vibrant pink and orange streaked sky, long cast shadows lining the sidewalks, the slightest breeze enough to provide a cool relief from the summer heat. Children chattering excitedly, their parents trotting casually behind them, eagerly awaiting bedtime. It's late when the Moore family arrives back at home after attending an evening church service. Their daughter Catherine, 10 years old, and her two friends, Lena and Ina Stillinger, 12 and 8, excited to spend the night tonight together, resist their mother's request for a quiet bedtime. Eventually, they all settle in, Lena and Ina in the guest bedroom downstairs, Catherine with her brothers Herman, Boyd, and Paul, aged 5 through 11, in the upstairs bedroom across the hallway from their parents Josiah and Sarah, ages only 43 and 39. The Moore family home was quiet at last. The occasional sniffle and snore signaled to an intruder hidden, lurking in the attic, smoking a cigarette, that it was safe to come out. 
late at night on June 9, 1912, into the early morning of June 10th, eight people were brutally murdered within those walls. Their killer never caught. All six members of the Moore family and their two guests were bludgeoned to death with an axe. A brutal murder with a haunting aftermath. Over a hundred years later, the home stands, restored to its original state, taunting its visitors with secrets. A breeding ground for paranormal investigators and enthusiasts, anyone who enters is sure to encounter the spirits trapped forever inside. But what exactly happened on that fateful night, and who is responsible? There are many theories, each of which we'll explore after the break. Meta podcasting. Meta podcasting. A podcast within a podcast. Podcastception. Uh, so a lot of different podcasts and shows have featured the Velisca Axe murders. What did we watch, Megan? We watched a in two thousand eight Ghost Adventures. You know the infamous Ghost Adventures. Yeah, that was unhinged to watch. We watched their episode, which is in season four. It was episode five, I believe, of Ghost Adventures. So unhinged. Like, the camera... Like, why was the camera work so shaky and and terrible? It was doing the most. Like it, I, was, it wasn't the camera. It was the editing. They edited so much vibration is the best way to... <laughs> Just, like, a PowerPoint transition slide, but, like... Stuck on repeat. It was so... It was... And and can we talk about Zach Bagan's haircut in that episode? Also unhinged. <laughs> Table Lore, a storytelling podcast where we rip on ghost adventures. <laughs> okay. Um, but we did also watch a more recent BuzzFeed Unsolved episode about the Velisca Axe murders. Mm-hmm. Much better watch, I will say. And better haircuts. <laughs> I would say the haircuts on BuzzFeed Unsolved are pretty pretty good. 10 out of 10. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot out there about this particular true crime case. It's one of the more popular, one of the more well-known cases throughout history, honestly, as well. At the time, it also was a huge case that got a lot of publicity back in 1912. But it is unsolved. Yeah. They never caught the murderer. And they never will at this point, which is really sad and very egregious because this crime, absolutely ridiculous. Like, I'm not sure who has it in them to murder anyone, much less a mother and father and six sleeping children. So, yeah, ridiculous. It's very sad. And what is even sadder is that there's a lot of theory and rumor and belief on the hand of some people that... These eight people are, their spirits are just trapped in this house forever. Right, which would be really scary because it's not just the spirits of the family that are allegedly in the house. It's It's rumored that the spirit of the murderer himself is also in this house as well. Yeah. So lots of paranormal activity in this extremely haunted house. Yeah, I would never, I would never... Which, by the go way, inside. you can actually go and spend the night in. You absolutely can. Yeah. Yeah. So if this is interesting to you after listening to this episode, 
go ahead and, and visit the Velisca Axe Murder House website where you can book your stay. Yep. But let's get back to the story. This is the real podcast. Christina and Eric arrive at the house, which doesn't look nearly as haunted as Christina had envisioned in her mind. From the outside, it almost seems just like any other old house, except for the boarded up windows and the chill that creeps up her back when she hears the neighbor's metal swing set creak. Tom, the caretaker of the house, exits the house next door and greets the couple. Welcome to the murder house, he exclaimed cheerfully before letting out a slight chuckle. He held his hand out to introduce himself to Eric and Christina and explains a few rules. Do not write on or in any way destroy the walls and or surfaces. If you need to use the bathroom, use the modern outhouse in the back and do not sit or sleep on any of the beds. Now I assume you brought some sleeping bags, correct? Eric and Christina look at each other, confused, and confess that they missed that part of the instructions. Tom explains the couple could rent a set from him, for an additional cost, of course. After signing waivers, the couple follow Tom into the murder house and settle in for the night. Tom doesn't go further than the front door, which Christina definitely notices and definitely feels concerned about. But Eric is bursting with excitement, and she doesn't want to ruin his mood. The house smells old in a way Christina has never smelled before. Not just musty or dirty, just old. Tired. Can something smell tired, she wondered. Her eyes wandered the room. The faintest bit of golden light sneaks through the boarded windows. Barely enough to light the rooms, but the sun had nearly set and she knew it would be totally dark soon. She unzips her backpack and pulls out her flashlight, clutching it tightly in her left hand. Fully furnished and decorated as though it was forever 1912, it felt almost like stepping back in time. The front room parlor had a sofa, some chairs, and an ornate upright piano decorated with doilies and and old sheet music. Christina could see how this room would have been a cozy place to hang out as a family, and wonders what the Moors would do in here. To the right, an open doorway reveals the parlor bedroom, the room where young Lena and Ines Dillinger were murdered. Eric poked his head through the doorway from inside the room. Tina, come on, this is so cool. He motioned for her to follow him inside, but she stays put. I don't know, this is all just a lot more than I thought it would be, she responded. Eric doesn't really get it. Not really. To him, it all seems like a museum or an exhibit, but to Christina, it feels like she's invaded the crime scene. Almost like she shouldn't be there. Doesn't it seem a bit disrespectful? She asks him. Eric thinks about it for a minute. I mean, I can see how it seems that way, But no, 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 no. I think this place is important, actually. We're here to understand and and witness what this house has to offer, he explains. Yeah, I guess. Christina follows Eric around the house, wandering in and out of each room, waiting for something to happen. In the children's room upstairs, the couple sat and waited on the floor for 30 minutes, hoping to hear the voices so many others claim to have heard from that room. Past visitors report hearing Herman, the oldest boy, talk to them, asking him to play with him. 
Others say they've heard the sound of toys clattering across the floor. But today the room is silent, which Eric finds very disappointing. After a while, Christina begins to warm up to the house and doesn't feel as scared anymore. And even she began to hope for something more memorable to happen while they were there. It was nearing 1 a.m., and they decide to set up their sleeping bags down in the parlor to try and get some sleep. Snuggled up close, Christina and Eric debrief their experience and talk about the case a little. I can't even imagine how horrifying it must have been for them, Eric says. Christina sighs before saying, I just wish there was a way to hold those kids, comfort them, you know, especially the really young ones. She didn't admit it right then, but Christina feels grateful at that moment that she and Eric couldn't have children. What's worse, she asks herself, never having them or losing them so tragically. She closes her eyes, attempting to force sleep, but can't shake the newfound feeling of being watched. She looks over at Eric, who seemed to have no problem falling asleep, and resolves to shake off the feeling. She dozes off, but shortly after is jolted awake by a hand touching her forehead. Christina nudges Eric and sleepily mumbles, What did you do that for? And Eric, still mostly asleep, responds, What are you talking about? You just touched my forehead, she says. No, I didn't, Eric defends. Yes, you did, Eric. I felt your hand touch my forehead. Cut it out. Eric sits up and grabs her hand. Christina, I swear, it wasn't me. You must have imagined it. Christina's stomach drops as she realizes Eric is telling the truth and feels her body stiffen. Eric. She begins, but stops when the couple hears footsteps going up the stairwell. Someone is in the house. Stay here. Eric demands while standing up and grabbing his flashlight to go explore. No way. You can't leave me alone, Christina says, standing up too. They walk up the stairs, not sure what to expect or what they would find, but rather than allowing their imaginations to run wild, they know that this was the only way to give themselves peace of mind. Their footsteps and their own breathing are the only audible sounds. In Josiah and Sarah's old bedroom, the bed linens, previously made up neatly, were folded over and wrinkled, as though someone had been sleeping in them. As they back out of the room to go downstairs, Eric could have sworn he heard a man's voice laughing faintly from the attic. The couple decides to bring their sleeping bag into their downstairs bedroom so they can have a closed door between them and the rest of the house. Eric sits upright on his sleeping bag, vigilantly watching the room with his arms folded across his chest as if to protect himself. Are you scared enough to leave yet? Christina asks, laying back down beside him, enveloped by the sleeping bag. Not quite, but I'll let you know if I get there, he says, with only a hint of nervousness in his voice. Just don't run out of the house without me. Promise? She questions, cuddling up closer to him. If I'm running out of this house, you'll be in my arms. Don't worry. Eric uncrosses his arms and clasps Christina's hand in his. Don't worry about it. Just try to get some sleep. It's not long before Christina drifts off into sleep, still holding her husband's hand. The next thing she knows, Christina is sitting up, Eric's sleeping bag empty next to hers. The house is still dark, and she opens her mouth to call Eric's name, but is unable to make a sound. 
She can feel her mouth and tongue moving, can feel the words vibrating in her throat, but no noise escapes. A wave of panic washes over her as she realizes that something is terribly wrong. She stands up, ready to leave the room and to go find Eric, tears stinging the corners of her eyes from fear. Right as she reaches for the doorknob, it begins to turn slowly. She backs up a step from the door and silently mouths the question, Eric? The door creaks open, and if Christina could make a sound, she would be screaming. A young girl in a nightdress stands in the doorway. She is covered in blood dripping down from her broken skull, and there's a gash on her forearm, also leaking blood onto the floor. The girl pauses for a moment and steps into the bedroom. Christina backs up as far away from the girl as possible, scrambling on top of the old metal-framed bed that guests are not supposed to be on. She crouches onto the bed, hugging her knees with one arm and holding out the other in front of her, as though to signal to the girl not to come any closer. Tears stream down Christina's cheeks as she silently repeats, Please don't, please don't, please don't, fearing that the girl means her harm. The girl continues walking toward Christina, leaving a trail of blood on the floor with each step. Christina closes her eyes, nearly ready to pass out from terror. She feels something jarringly cold touch her hand, and her eyes snap open to see the little girl directly in front of her, grasping her hand. Christina is completely frozen with panic, her body incapable of movement. All she can do is look into the girl's eyes, which are full of pain and sadness. Can you help me? The girl asks in a small voice. I want to go home. I don't want to spend the night here anymore. Please. There's a scary man here and I miss my mother and father. Christina blinks rapidly, trying to clear the tears from her eyes so she can see the girl better. She is still overwhelmed with fear but can feel her brain catching up to her, remembering where she is and what happened here a century ago. This must be one of the girls who was murdered here one of Catherine's friends. Please, my name is Lena Stillinger and I want to go home. Christina is roused back to reality from Eric's gentle shaking of her shoulder. Hey, babe, you're having a bad dream. Wake up. Christina opens her eyes and can feel that her cheeks are wet. You were crying in your sleep, babe. Are you okay? Christina takes a second to gather her bearings. She is still in her sleeping bag on the floor of the old haunted house, and Eric is next to her, looking concerned. Yeah, I'm okay, just a scary dream. Eric wraps an arm around her, drawing her close to his chest and kissing the top of her head. The sun is just starting to rise. I think I'm ready to go home. Is that okay with you? Eric asks, more nervousness in his voice than last night. Don't have to ask me twice. She replies, still thinking about the bloody little girl in her dream. The couple don't even bother getting dressed and leave the house still in their pajamas. They roll up their sleeping bags quickly and leave them on the porch of Tom's house next door. I don't think I need another experience like that anytime soon, Eric reflects. Me neither, babe. How about we find a different podcast to listen to on the way home? Something a little less creepy, Christina suggests, squeezing Eric's hand. The drive back home feels agonizingly long, and Christina tries to think about anything else besides the bloody visage of Lena Stillinger, but is unsuccessful. Finally, they pull up the driveway to their house, and Christina smiles at the sight of Cheddar sitting in the front window. Shower and a nap? 
Eric suggests putting a car in park in their garage. Yes, please. Christina agrees, jumping out of the car. The couple walk into the house, happy to be far away from Villisca. A few moments after Christina and Eric walk inside, the backseat door of the car opens, wide enough as if for a person to climb out, and shuts again. In the window, Cheddar begins to purr as the ghostly hand of Lena Stillinger strokes his back. <laughs> so Lena went home with them. Lena didn't want to stay at that house anymore, so she got to go home. She misses her mommy and daddy. So... Ghost adoption, ghost, ghost adoption. <laughs> okay, well... It takes all ways to become a parent, and ghost adoption is one of them. Please talk to your local social workers about how to get ghost adoption started for you and your family. <laughs> Very nice. I think we could adopt a ghost child. Um... I'm good with cats. I would love my ghost child. They could do real cool tricks and rob a bank for fun. Ah, I understand the appeal now. Even ghost children deserve love. (laughs) They do deserve love. You're right. I agree. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and get started on the paperwork then, I guess. Thank you. And I think we should name him Casper and then be Cass and Cass. Like Casper the ghost. Yeah. And then me, Cass. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, really, though, what would you do if a ghost child just, like, went home with you? Oh, I'd freak out. Yeah, I'd I'd freak out for real. And if it was petting or one of our beloved cats? Yeah, that is creepy. But, you know, it's like cats sometimes just look off into the distance and it's, like, great. Oh, I think cats fully see ghosts all the time. I mean, I've heard that cats can see ghosts, right? Cats and dogs creepy well maybe cheddar and lena will be really happy together yeah maybe lena always just wanted a cat and everything will be fine (laughs) there we go well that is the end of this episode so thank you so much for listening yeah and we do have a bit of an announcement about our schedule yes so starting now episodes will be out every other tuesday yes we are both back in school and this is both of our last years of our current programs so things are about to get pretty hectic for us grad school chaos so the next episode will be out on september 6th uh thanks for listening shout out to all of our loyal followers we appreciate all of your love and support and if you don't already give us a follow on any of our social media accounts we're at table lore podcast on instagram twitter facebook the whole shebang and you can also visit our website www.tablelorepodcast.com send us a message let us know how your gameplay experience goes give us suggestions for next episodes in the meantime though let's roll that d100 31. 31? Ha! Babe, guess what? What? We're going to the Sunflower State of Kansas. Our favorite. We love Kansas. Nice. We'll see you around in Kansas next week. Stick around for some gameplay suggestions.
Okay, storytellers, now it's your turn to create the rest of this story. Roll a d6 for inspiration about how to continue. If you roll a 1 or a 2, it's 1912. And you and your party play as the Velisca townsfolk days after the gruesome murder of Moore family and the Stillinger sisters. What secrets do you uncover in your investigation of the murders? Are you able to discover who committed this atrocious crime? If you roll a 3 or a 4, you and your party have decided to stay overnight at the Velisca murder house. What spectral encounters do you experience? Is the ghostly presence here good, bad, or neutral? What is lost or sacrificed during the night? And if you roll a 5 or a 6, you and your party play as a group of supernatural professionals that Christina and Eric hire to help them get rid of the ghost of Lena Stillinger, who now haunts their home. What does it take to help this little girl move on?